Welcome back to Pregnant Pause, the show that asks the question, should we have kids? Hello? Hi. Hey. Hi. 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 Oh Welcome. my god, look at you. You're ready to roll. That voice you're hearing with mine is our friend, Rabbi Alana. We ruined Shabbos. Why? Because we're late. And because we failed at finding Kabbalah. Shira and I invited her and her husband Justin over for dinner. Like us, we knew they had been talking a lot about the possibility of having kids. So we wanted to commiserate. And frankly, Justin, who's a philosophy professor, brought a perspective to the conversation I was not expecting. After the four of us sat down to dinner, we got to talking about how, if you have kids, you and your partner are going to have to spend a lot of time figuring out how you want to raise them. Your different ways of like being in the world or different philosophies about life are just going to like have to get played out. Things that never would have to get played out. Be like, you think that and I think this other thing and it doesn't matter. But when we have a kid, we actually have to fucking figure that out. And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm saying F word a lot. You're going to have know. to cut all no, that out. Is, no rules on the internet. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. the internet. Yeah. And here's Alana's husband, Justin, the philosopher. I think a lot of this also, like, this is where my own sort of stuff comes in. Like, we've already started down the road of that it is a good idea to have children. And I think that that's, like, not at all well-established. Um, I have deep philosophical reservations about the idea that having children is actually even morally... Here it uh, comes. <laughs> it's actually even morally, uh, morally praiseworthy. Yeah, so let's, let's hear it. <clears throat> All right. So to help us understand Justin's reservations about having kids, so a, let's step into his thought experiment. Uh, and see what you think about this thought experiment. So imagine that you are working at a carnival. And at the carnival, your job is to recruit people to get on a ride. Step right up here, step right up. And it's a really fun ride. It's a really fun ride. You're trying to get people to come on your ride. Get your tickets here. But you know, like, out of every hundred people, occasionally you'll get someone who gets pretty shaken up. But you let people go on the ride anyways. It's like one in a hundred people who actually have... Moderate to severe physical and or psychological harm. But um, at the end of the day, you, you say, all risks aside, I'm going to call people on the ride because I know that the ride's fun. Trust me, it's worth it. But now let's crank the odds way up. Now it's not one in a hundred chance that someone's going to get psychologically or physically hurt. Now it's one in ten. Would you feel morally plagued by encouraging people to get on that ride? The truth of the matter is, says Justin, we are all on that ride. But with the carnival example, only one in ten people experience suffering. In life, we all will. And unlike the people at the carnival deciding whether or not they want to get on the ride, we never consented. Our parents summoned us onto a, a ride. And on this ride, every single one of us will suffer. We'll break our leg, we'll get depressed, we'll have our hearts broken. We will all watch our parents, our best friends die. We will get diseases and we will die. And in the same moral impulse that says that the person who had put someone on that ride, in the carnival example, is a morally reprehensible human being. Step right up here, step right up. 
Uh, all things aside, right? Even if it's all kinds of great things will happen, wonderful things. But the fact that you guarantee suffering can only be perceived as morally reprehensible. There's a philosophical position for what Justin is describing here. It's called antinatalism. And it says, basically, bringing a human being into this world is wrong. If an antinatalist was running that carnival ride, they wouldn't let anyone on. Hmm, maybe the ride ain't worth it after all. And if an antinatalist is an adult thinking about having kids, they wouldn't go through with it. The, the sort of pop culture version of this that's really fascinating is in the first season of True Detective. Uh, Rust Cole is a, is, a, is a pessimist and an antinatalist. The honorable thing for our species to do is deny our programming. Stop reproducing. Walk hand in hand into extinction. One last midnight, brothers and sisters opting out of a raw deal. When something is as shocking as an antinatalist position emerges into the mouth of an incredibly popular character on, on television, it tells me that we're feeling something as a society. That there's some deep suspicion about the future. And so uh, the fact that that show is so popular it's part of the reason why I started actually teaching the antinatalist position. Um, not to convince anyone of it, because I don't think that you can actually rationally convince anyone of it, really. But to see whether or not it sticks. I think I'm just an impressionable guy, but the antinatalism argument does stick with me. What do you make of it, Shira? He used the example of, like, your parents are going to die, your friends are going to die, and it's like, that's experiencing life. I think, yes, it's painful, but like we grow and we learn and, and we're expanded by it. Like it isn't this like black and white, I'm bringing kids into the world and it's gonna be painful. And that is a, a morally problematic thing. Like life is way more nuanced than that. Everything is gray, nothing's black and white. She's getting fired up. Yeah, I tend to get riled up. That's good, I like it. And I understand what you mean when you say this isn't actually how we experience the world through these moral arguments. But I think where the suffering becomes literal is imagining the consequences of something like climate change. I mean, we live in Michigan near freshwater and we're not even necessarily immune from what might happen in the next 5, 10, 20, 100 years. And so there's a very real possibility that our kids would live in a world where there are scarce resources and a lot more extreme weather events than we have now. Well, here we go again, another broken record. Just like a broken record. Uh, 2016 January, the warmest January on record. In fact, the warmest January ever since we've been keeping track and the greatest difference between what is normal and what we had. Whatever does happen, whether it's apocalyptic or not, the people that are gonna be most impacted are those who haven't been born yet. So don't we have a responsibility to think twice about bringing kids into that world? I don't have a good answer for you. I don't have like a good rebuttal except to say what you're saying is true and also my deep desire to have children and hope they come into this world and make it better and think of new they're part of the process of new creative ways of combating it. Like, it's an idealistic perspective, but like... But not having kids. 
for some hypothetical future suffering doesn't do it for you. No, and maybe that's selfish and maybe that's a problem. Coming up, what do you get when you mix family planning with climate anxiety? A breakdown at the San Francisco International Airport. That's after a quick break. To everyone who's written emails to us, thank you so much. They mean a lot. Keep them coming. Pregnantpausepodcast at gmail.com. And if you're up for it, record a voice memo on your phone. Talk about the reasons you might be hesitating to have kids. Or maybe how you got over your anxiety. Email those voice memos in, and we might play them on the show. That's pregnantpausepodcast at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to share us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever. Our website is pregnantpausepodcast.com. Thanks. Back to episode three. We are in a position of potentially causing irreparable harm to our children, grandchildren, and future generations. That's James Hansen. He's a famous climate scientist, and he's been warning people about climate change for decades. And now here we are, all these years later, and I have a case of climate anxiety. And I'm realizing I'm definitely not the only one. You're probably like the 17th person that I've specifically met that is having these same exact questions. So <laughs> I know that it's probably widespread, but I, maybe it's something that people don't talk about very much in public. So my name is Eric Holthouse, and I'm a meteorologist. I write for Slate Magazine, mostly on weather and climate. Back in 2013, Eric had a very public breakdown in the San Francisco airport. It came after he read a new report by the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And one of his big takeaways from that report was that geoengineering, you know, this big kind of technological fix that a lot of people have in mind for how we're going to solve climate change, were too late. That was the silver bullet and it's gone now. So it's really kind of sort of do or die time right now. Your attention, please. What follows is a bunch of tweets that Eric wrote from the San Francisco airport. Okay, I don't think I've ever read these out loud, so here we go. 1.43pm, <laughs> 27 September 2013. I just broke down in tears in the boarding area at SFO while on the phone with my wife. I've never cried because of a science report before. 1.45pm. I realized just now this has to be the last flight I ever take. I'm committing right now to stop flying. It's not worth the climate. 1.45 p.m. We all have to do everything we can every day to reverse CO2 emissions. There is no other way that makes sense. Okay, thank you for waiting, ladies and gentlemen. At this time, we're going to continue boarding. Passengers who are sitting in zones 1. 2.33 p.m. Why am I committing to not flying anymore? It's the same reason I'm vegetarian. It's my biggest carbon footprint. And the tweet that caught me by surprise. Another thing I'm considering, World Vasectomy Day is on October 18th, 2013. Having kids will skyrocket your carbon footprint. You can recycle everything you buy, 
stop flying, get a Prius, but none of these choices come close to reducing CO2 emissions as not having a kid. But that's not Eric's sole reason for thinking about a vasectomy. At this point, he, like me, is freaked out not just about what having a kid will do to the planet, but what the planet might do to his kid. The most likely projections on climate change keep getting revised upwards. Like We keep finding new science that tilts towards things being worse than we thought. If there's really no hope, why would I want to have a child that I care about so much go through that? So we decided that we didn't want to have kids. We got to a pretty rough place of despair after a few months of deciding that we didn't want to have kids. We were like existentially depressed every day, and I couldn't, and she couldn't either really go, go on like that. So we both decided we need to change our attitude somehow. What did you do uh, emotionally or, or mentally to make that pivot? So we decided then that we would just kind of be more open to the thought that if there is anything that could bring us hope again, it would be having a child and knowing that we needed to kind of redouble our efforts on behalf of the child. So then maybe four or five months after we decided not to have kids, we... um, We got pregnant, and it was an instant shift. And what's it like to be a dad after having had that reservation about it? I mean, my wife would be the first to say it's the best thing that's ever happened to her. And, I mean, for me as well. It's just like something turns on in your brain that you didn't even know was there. I mean, this is probably just so cliche, but yeah, it's really hard to have a kid but it's all so really amazing so i know that it's like on the cover of every parenting book so in the end eric didn't have a vasectomy but they have made some sacrifices they're down to one car they're vegetarians and for the most part they just don't fly anymore which seems really difficult but We still live in 2016 in the United States and our family is spread around and it's so entitled and white privilege, I know, to say that, oh, I should fly because I want to see my family for Christmas, but... But you want to see your family for Christmas. Yeah, so, so I don't, I I, I mean, I'm still obviously really struggling with that part of that decision, but, um, but, but I don't, I don't know. Okay, so after now learning about antinatalism, a term I hadn't heard before, Justin, and hearing Eric Holdhouse's story, have your thoughts changed at all, Shirsky? I think it maybe just like reaffirms to me that, you know, through this podcast or whatever, like you're kind of looking for an answer or something that feels like right. And I, I, I don't think you'll find it in particular with the question of having kids and climate change, because I think... The situation with climate change is pretty shitty, looks pretty bleak. Yeah, and even more so than I felt before talking to all those people. 
I think it's scarier than I originally thought. I think it's a huge gamble to have a kid. But at the same time, I also don't think I have the courage to say, nope, we're not having kids because of what the world might look like. I don't think I could I could do that either. I think I would have too much regret. And I think that each decision is true and right. And every individual has to make it. And I don't think one way is right or wrong. And I guess I really want our decision to be that we're going to have kids. Get your shit together. <laughs> I'm lost on the river. Dark is the night. Just like the blind. Praying for a sight. Drifting along. Heart filled with strife. I'm lost on On the next episode of Pregnant Pause, we'll meet writer and child-free spokeswoman Megan Dom. And she'll tell us why she's not really a fan of that word, child-free. It's true, I don't like that word. It just sounds like gluten-free or smoke-free, you know. Yeah, it's a problem, though, because childless by choice is a real mouthful. And in the age of Twitter and and, uh, everything else, I myself have been known to hashtag child-free just because it's more efficient. Thank you for listening to episode three. If you like what you've heard, please tell your friends and family. Share us on social media. Our website is pregnantpausepodcast.com. If you leave a review on iTunes, that helps us attract new ears to the show. Thanks for doing that. Pregnant Pause is produced and edited by Shira and I. We had production help from Max, Jenna, Henry, and Josh at Pineapple Street Media. Our carnival barker was played by the great David Frederick Gluckman. Get your tickets here! Kira Denham is our graphic designer. Our theme song, as well as a bunch of other music, like the song you're hearing now, comes from Eve Barsley. Find him at Bandcamp. Also, thanks to Michigan's own Ghostly Songs for letting us into their library. Special thanks this week to Lisa Hymas, Jenny Ferrara, Kathy Jetsendel Kitchener, M. Sophia Newman, and Patrick Crouch. You can follow Eric Holthouse on Twitter at Eric Holthouse. The title of today's episode, The Climate Warriors, is inspired by the blog Confessions of a Climate Warrior. Find it at climatewarrior.blogspot.com. A couple other resources for those of you who are dealing with climate anxiety. If you haven't already, check out Conceivable Future. They are a women-led network of Americans bringing awareness to the threat climate change poses to reproductive justice. Also, the Dark Mountain Project is inspiring. They are a network of writers, artists, and thinkers who have stopped believing the stories our civilization tells itself. Meanwhile, thanks for listening to the stories we're telling you. Talk to you next week.